Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts, especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributors. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Good morning. My text this morning is Luke 14:26. You can follow along in the Pew Bible as I read if you like or just listen to these challenging words of Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Though I've never heard a sermon on this text and have rarely encountered discussion of it, I've been intrigued by it for some time. Jesus uses strong words here. In order to be his disciple, you must hate your parents, your spouse, your children, your siblings. Where have you ever heard anything like that in a Christian context? In fact, there is no place where conventional families are more hallowed than inside Christianity, especially American Christianity. The message about duty to parents is strong. Honoring and obeying them is one of our Ten Commandments, and though it may not always happen, honoring parents is part of our official position. Marriage is thought to be the province of the church, so much so that Christians believe we have the right and the obligation to define it and are quick to react negatively to any unauthorized expansion of our definition. Churches are places where child-rearing is overtly celebrated, and though we may not always do everything possible to make it easy for families with children to participate, it is our express aim to foster families. The term family values is treated as though it exists in scripture, though of course it doesn't. So what is Jesus saying here? And why does he say it in such strong terms? A wonderful start to answering that question can be found in Richard Rohr's excellent book, Falling Upward, where he points out that many people are kept from maturing in their faith because of the pious, immature, or rigid expectations of their family of origin. As he explains it, one of the major impediments to mature spirituality is what we would now call the collective, the crowd, our society, or our extended family. Some call it the crab bucket syndrome. You try to get out, but the other crabs just keep pulling you back in. I need to quote him a bit here because I can't say it any better. What passes for morality or spirituality in the vast majority of people's lives is the way everybody they grew up with thinks. 
Without any very real inner work, most people will never move beyond that. You might get beyond it in a negative sense by reacting or rebelling against it, but it is much less common to get out of the crab bucket in a positive way, and that is what we want here. Jesus uses quite strong words to push us out of the family nest and to name unnecessary suffering at the most personal, counterintuitive, and sentimental level possible. I recommend to you Father Rohr's work on this subject in Falling Upward, which is very helpful and appropriately challenging. Suffice it to say that moving beyond family of origin stuff is extremely difficult and to some degree always necessary to spiritual growth, no matter how idyllic your family of origin appeared to be, and maybe especially if it seemed idyllic. Yet the pull is very strong, and the church, which so idolizes family, often isn't very much help. I think that is much of what Jesus is getting at when he says that unless you hate your family, you can't be his disciple. But I want to carry that thought even deeper this morning. I think the fact that Jesus sets this exhortation in terms of family is important. I want to suggest that Jesus' strong and unequivocal words also point to how our idolization of family itself hinders us from spiritual growth, from being true followers of Christ. Our idolization of family keeps us inside the crab bucket by keeping us tied to values and beliefs that we need to let go of, and also specifically by keeping us from honoring what is true about the love around us and the relationships around us. Let me start with parents. There's some very good work being done right now around protecting children from abuse inside the church, including by Billy Graham's grandson, Boz Chivijan. He formerly prosecuted child abuse cases and now works on raising awareness about abuse and protecting children, particularly inside the church. One of the things I've appreciated about his writing and speaking on the subject is his observation of ways in which the church has tended to protect abusers, including abusive parents, by a kind of naivete about repentance and even about who gets believed when abuse is reported. I see this sometimes in my work as a judge. It's not uncommon for an accused parent to bring in as a witness a pastor or church leader whose assessment of the parent seems to disregard concerning evidence a bit too easily. I grew up in a household where religion was used to justify violence and emotional abuse. Extracting from those circumstances was a painful and difficult process for me that took many years, during which my Christian parents regularly quoted scripture to me and even accused me of being deceived by Satan. I used to have a recurring nightmare about going to a Christian counselor with my parents and having the counselor take their side, something that actually happened to one of my brothers. Even as an adult, I once had a Christian friend of my parents who did not know me from Adam call me out of the blue and castigate me for not being in contact with them. Yet breaking contact with my parents 
has been a matter of survival for me during certain periods of my life, including right now. How well do we honor the truth of the families among us, and specifically the children among us? Do we create a space big enough to hold the truth and to accord respect for parents that is tempered with insight and honesty? I would pose similar questions about marriage. We inside the church elevate marriage to iconic status and historically have celebrated and protected heterosexual marriages as if they all embody the ideals of marriage. We act as though long-term marriage is always a good thing. Yet we, we've been guilty of insisting that people stay inside of marriages in which they are being abused, marriages that are deeply unhealthy. We have acted as though commitment to the institution itself is the end goal, rather than inquiring as to whether the values we herald in the institution even exist in many of the marriages upon which we insist. People who need help leaving marriages, who, dare I say, feel called out of <coughs> destructive marriages, and I am one of those people, have not generally found help inside the church. I know of examples as recent as the last five years in which people whose very lives depended upon leaving their marriages were penalized for doing so by, the, by church communities rather than helped to do that difficult but necessary work. In the meantime, we've paid insufficient attention to those whom our ideals of marriage and family leave out. Christians have historically lagged behind the rest of society in accepting and supporting long-term commitments that didn't fit Christian norms. We formerly used scripture to argue against interracial marriages, and many still use scripture to decry gay marriages. Our stance has had nothing to do with the truth of the people in those marriages, which we have treated as irrelevant. That trend is so per persistent that we ought to be very suspicious of our ability to judge which relationships deserve societal uplift that we've insisted upon for certain relationships to the exclusion of others. We have missed, too, how we devalue people who are not in marriages that the church blesses or who don't have children. Ask single people or divorced people or childless people sometime how invisible they feel inside churches. I was in a church only a few years ago that held a Valentine's Day banquet in which was specifically open only to heterosexual couples. I, as a single person, was specifically not invited. I fumed about this privately beforehand until I was actually asked if I could provide piano accompaniment for the event. <laughs> I not only declined, but I expressed my objections to the church holding an event from which single people were excluded. I didn't even bring up my gay friends, as that particular church, not surprisingly, didn't have any out gay couples in it. My objections had no effect. The event went forward as planned, though not with my accompaniment. <laughs> Friends, we have made idols of certain relationship forms, conventional marriage and family, and missed the substance. 
We are like the Pharisees who Jesus criticized in Matthew 23 for tithing mint and dill and cumin, but neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. We are like those whom he chided for straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. We cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, missing what the cup and dish contain. If relationships are worth celebrating, it is because of what they contain, not because of what they look like on the outside. Love doesn't always fit into our boxes, and our favored boxes do not always contain love. Hallowing certain boxes, regardless of what they contain, and condemning other boxes without regard to what they contain, profanes the very sacraments we profess to uphold. The truth is we are far less qualified to judge each other's relationships than we think. We probably just need to swear off doing that altogether, especially given our history on this subject. The next step would be to approach the subject of relationships with genuine humility. The forms we have treated as idols really only have value to the extent they point us to the ideal of love and connection. And these things come in more forms than we imagine. As Martin Buber put it, all real living is meeting. Deep relationship observes, deserves celebration and support and gratitude wherever it exists and in whatever form it exists. We won't begin to discern where deep relationship exists and in what form it exists if we don't create space for what is true and tell the truth ourselves. When people are suffering in their relationships, we need to create space for them to tell us if they want to and support for living into what is true, whether that means healing the relationship or leaving it. When their relationships bring them healing and deep connection, we would do well to attend to that because, friends, healing and deep connection do not exist in all relationships. They certainly do not exist in all conventional marriages and all families. I've alluded to my personal history a fair bit today, and it's a risky thing to do from my particular vantage point because I have lived my life on the painful edge of every kind of family relationship. My purpose is not to grind an ax against the church, but rather to speak to the examples I know best of the kinds of truth I am just sure we are missing. My Christian family of origin was a place of abuse and trauma, And I'm quite clear in understanding that my spiritual development has required separating from that family more dramatically than most people find it necessary to do. I was married inside the church as a young woman, and I entered that marriage with the belief that divorce was not an option I would ever consider, and proceeded to work very hard to make that marriage work. But I'm quite certain that 10 years later and after much struggle and prayer on my part, God called me out of my marriage. 
Leaving my marriage was such a good and hard-won victory for my spiritual growth that I actually thought someone should throw me a party. <laughs> but not surprisingly, that didn't happen. And certainly no one congratulated me inside the church. And though as a married woman I had not noticed the phenomenon before, I quickly learned what it felt like to be invisible inside the church as a single person. But the most significant and challenging aspect of my own experience is this. Around the time that I left my marriage, not coincidentally at a time of profound spiritual awakening, I came to realize, as did my friend Stan Thornburg, who many of you know is a pastor and spiritual father to this very community, we both came to realize that we were deeply, deeply connected and that our love for each other was more profound than what either of us saw in most marriages or experienced in our own marriages. This was a challenging thing to recognize because for many reasons, not least of them the very dynamics I've been talking about this morning, Stan was not in a position to leave his marriage, which meant that the love that we shared would not find its home in that particular container. For the next 19 years, Though we did not marry, I was Stan's partner. Had we had a place to share our truth safely during those years, what we would have shared is that we loved each other profoundly, knew and understood each other more deeply than either of us experienced elsewhere, supported each other's work and ministry, indeed were partners in ministry right out in the open. As Stan liked to say, each of us carried the agenda of the other around in our hearts. For 19 years, it would have been obvious to anyone who paid any attention at all that Stan and I were very important to each other. And mostly, that was dangerous for us. People inside the church reacted with suspicion and often criticism. Every so often, we would be called upon to account for ourselves and to assure people inside the church that nothing immoral was happening. And yet at the same time, both of us were acutely aware that our connection was central to the survival of each of us and that the church community that we served benefited profoundly from that connection. I was the more invisible one in the relationship, but from that place of invisibility, when Stan was celebrated, as he sometimes was, I would think to myself with some pain and sorrow, you're welcome, everybody. <laughs> I've mentioned to a few people that I've been writing this sermon in my head for over a decade. In those years when I watched less loving relationships be celebrated and protected, but experienced suspicion in response to any glimmers of the love that Stan and I shared. Given what each of us experienced as a prison and what each experienced as life-giving and nurturing to our spiritual growth, it made sense to me that Jesus would say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In Stan's last years, he had taken steps to leave his marriage, and I cared for him in his final illnesses without support. Yet when he died, my love for him was hardly celebrated. Instead, I was shunned 
and still am in many quarters. Even where I am not shunned, I mostly am not honored as Dan's partner, though I have made no secret of that fact. And though Stan's daughter Haley and I share a close bond that we experience and name as a familial bond, our truth is much less celebrated than it could be and is even treated with hostility in some quarters. I am living evidence that the deepest of loves can manage to flourish in the shadows, but I can also tell you that love suffers there for lack of support and celebration and consolation and a place to rest and to thrive. And its impact on the world is lessened and even thwarted. I can tell you that the loss of such love is much heavier to bear in loneliness and isolation. Whose stories are we leaving out when we build support for and protect relationships? How can we honor and create space for the truth of the relationships around us? How might creating that space be essential to discipleship? What riches might open to us if we created more such spaces?